0: Hello, Yuma. I'm Quentin Grafton, Professor of Economics at the Australian National University and the convener of the Water Justice Hub, a platform for truth-telling and justice for all in relation to water. In this spirit of justice and reconciliation, we also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the country throughout Australia on which this podcast has been produced and honor their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respect to their elders past, present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. The Water Justice Hub is a place for everyone, especially First Peoples, to promote their voice and respond to the global challenges of delivering sustainable development and water for all. This podcast is an initiative to represent water warriors and their stories from around the world, sharing ideas and narratives to assist in education, advocacy and water policy. Along this series, you will hear from a variety of voices promoting fluid conceptions of water justice as critical to the survival of individuals and also to our collective survival. Please listen with intent. Subscribe and share this podcast to assist in the fight for independent voices, equitable decision making, and ultimately, water justice for all. To complete our travels in this series, we turn to the land on which this podcast has been produced. Australia. Australia's rainfall varies greatly from year to year and from region to region. Climate change has caused a drying trend across the southeast and southwestern part of Australia. Water is becoming more scarce and more precious. Water is also much more than a commodity here in Australia and elsewhere. It is inextricably tied to the culture and spirituality of the land's first peoples. While Australia's First Peoples have rights and interests over 30% of Australia's landmass, they have less than 1% of the water rights in Australia. Despite sovereignty never being ceded in Australia, water decision-making is made by governments. First Peoples are typically not asked for their free, prior and informed consent when it comes to water decision-making. Natural environments in Australia that rely on water are in danger of damage beyond repair and some waterways, rivers and streams are becoming uninhabitable for wildlife. The water injustice in Australia requires many voices to adequately respond to the challenges. Tim and Kat present some of the wise and unique perspectives that champion water justice for Australia's peoples, First Peoples and non-Indigenous, and Australia's ecosystems.
1: Thanks Quintin. The following interviews tell heartfelt stories that we're enthused to share with you. There are many ways that we could bring water justice to Australia, for the land, for the animals and for the people who call Australia home. We started with something close to my heart, intrigued by the salmon industry in Tasmania, which has received a fair amount of criticism in recent years. Unfortunately the problems caused by salmon farming are not disappearing and it isn't just fish that are being hurt
2: people see that nature is getting trounced by our activities and that maybe we should stop doing that and right now would be a good time to stop doing that. Mm.
1: (laughs) Distinguished Professor Jamie Kirkpatrick at the University of Tasmania is a geographer and conservation ecologist. Recipient of the Eureka Prize for Environmental Research and an Order of Australia for Service to Conservation, Jamie is an accomplished warrior not just for water but for the natural world. The research supervised by Jamie on the salmon industry in Tasmania has informed wide debate on the future of salmon farming in Australia. Jamie has also published commentary on how science is weaponized in these debates, often by vested interests for the sake of economic growth and at the cost of precious natural resources like water. We're joined on the Water Justice podcast by Jamie Kirkpatrick. Thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Jamie, so far in the series, we've looked at land animals having their drinking water affected, but another type of animal I suppose we should be looking at is fish and all animals that call water their home, their habitat. Can you tell us a little bit about how sea life and water life is faring in Tasmania?
2: Well, it's generally generally doing quite well. The, the work that's been done by the fisheries people, like Graham Edgar, who's a, a fisheries conservation scientist, suggests that larger fish species are getting smaller and especially outside marine reserves so it's only in strict marine reserves that we're maintaining populations of the fish large with large individuals of the fish that people catch commercially you know
1: so it's on the whole doing quite well did you say
2: yeah well we've we, there's been very few extinctions so far there's been a lot of uh, decrease in <laughs> decrease in uh, fish populations and other marine life populations as a result of climate change mm. particularly in Tasmania but there have been some very bad instances of pollution uh, affecting affecting native plant species so there's plenty of water because they live in it but the water is no longer suited for either their reproduction or or their very existence.
1: Mm.
2: One of the things that I worked on most has been the case of Macquarie Harbour, which is over the West coast of Tasmania and where it rains a lot, you know, four or five metres a year in some parts and the, water flows black from the bits of peat that are carried down and this fresh water goes into Macquarie Harbour which has got a very narrow entrance to the Southern Ocean and it lays over the top of a saltwater wedge that comes in through the heads. So the whole of the harbour is this black water and there's a saltwater wedge underneath and there's a, a Tasmanian endemic fish species, the Morgean scape, that only occurs there and in one further south, where it's not very common, and it requires oxygenated water in the salt wedge underneath for its survival. Unfortunately, fish farms got established in Macquarie Harbour, large numbers of fish farms, and there were over 20,000 fish in Macquarie Harbour, and they poo a lot, and the poo makes the water more fertile, <laughs> mm-hmm. and the fertility results in deoxygenation of the water. So you get anoxic conditions, and if you get anoxic conditions down below, you, that means the, the Morgan skate can't operate down there because it can't breathe because fish breathe as well and they need oxygen in the water. Mm. So that sort of pollution problem is rather extreme and an extreme example of what can happen with the development of marine marine farms in estuarine
1: environments do the fish have nice environments in their farms? I'm sort of imagining, you know, not free range chickens.
2: Yeah, well, I'm, I'm a vegan myself. So, yeah, like I think the whole planet is uh, just a horrible concentration camp. And the fish aren't doing any better than the cows and the sheep and the chickens and the everything else that's being tortured to make people unhealthy. <laughs> There's been lots of criticism of the fish farms because there's a large number of fish and they're constrained and they're they're fed pellets and
1: Mm.
2: not much of a life for them compared to whipping out into the ocean and then coming back to breed, fighting their way up over waterfalls and then dying, Mm. (laughs) which they did, Mm. (laughs) Mm. which is a very different sort of life for them. Yeah.
3: So when we're looking at these fish farms, like what does that tell us about what is valued about water and what is not valued about water?
2: Well, I think what's valued about water in, in our society is, is its potential to make, make profits, not to the same extreme as other things, but certainly that's a, an overriding thing. I mean, we do still have a a modicum of public welfare in mind when we think about water, don't we? We want people to be able to drink water without dying immediately. And we want, you know, the water supplies to be clean and and okay. But we're willing to sacrifice that if something profitable wants to make the water more polluted or sacrifice it if we want to exhaust the water for short-term ends, like with groundwater.
3: Can you tell us a bit more about some of the impacts on water of fish farms? You mentioned drinking water. Is drinking water threatened by fish farms?
2: Well, fish farms, they have inland hatcheries which release a fair amount of nutrients into streams. They are regulated more than the farmers that release nutrients into the streams, but that can be quite a high load. And For instance, even though it's been raining really heavily in Hobart, over the last three months, sort of almost record stuff, we're having water restrictions because of the pollutants that are getting into the treatment plants because we get a lot of our water from the River Derwent, And it takes much more to clean out the pollutants in high rainfall situations than it does in low rainfall situations. (laughs) So... (laughs) There are problems. Some people have suggested that fish farms should be moved totally onto land, but those sort of problems, you need close cycles with the nutrients to actually make that achievable yeah
1: so this it's... this uh problem i mean fish farms in tasmania have had plenty of media coverage there's certainly a lot of controversy surrounding the issue who, who do you listen to in that circumstance i mean you seem like a good voice of reason
2: <laughs> well yes it's a it's a hard one it really depends on your values doesn't it because you know like any use of land or water there are negative effects on something So it's really a matter of what you value. So it's, I don't think anyone's arguing that you don't get pollution from fish farms. What people are arguing is that it's worth it Mm. to have the pollution from fish farms to achieve economic goals like employment. But employment's basically a a fantasy, a social fantasy, because, I mean, it's... We could define any sort of employment into existence. We could pay people to produce podcasts, for instance, (laughs) or to be lifesavers on a beach. And in some parts of the world, they do pay people to be lifesavers on a beach. Mm. So it's a social choice, the employment thing, but it's sort of jobs and growth are really the motivation of people So they're willing to sacrifice something for jobs and growth. So the facts don't really matter all that much. (laughs) Uh, They do to some extent because the people on the side of, well, we need to have fish farms for jobs and growth. So, oh, yeah, it is a bit bad here. We might do something about that. We need some more regular, and we've got regulatory frameworks. We might improve them here and there and and the other side. So you you do get some movement taking place, but... Mm. The basic conflict is basically irreconcilable because it's a conflict of values.
3: To go back to that point, there's certainly a lot of work that could be done and not necessarily jobs for that work that needs to be done. Jamie, what do you think the solutions are here? And I'd like to invite you to, if you want to explore really transformative aspects, then please do.
2: Well, the way forward for a lot of our problems is to shift humanity to plant-based diets, much more plant-based diets, and abandon this cruelty that we do on animals and the environment in the name of having a particular dietary framework. There's a very large proportion. I've seen, you know, figures vary, but 70% of greenhouse inputs in one set of figures that I saw were, were basically just caused from eating meat, I mean and 4% from the internet, we could get rid of that pretty easily and that would be a benefit to humanity. <laughs> <laughs> and,
3: uh, yeah. It's, uh, As we do in the interview over the internet. <laughs> yeah, I know.
2: <laughs> we have to go back to shonky tape recorders. and <laughs> 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 So, I mean, we have all these choices. I mean, it just seems to me the problems that we have are so easily solved. <laughs> I mean, we have the solutions as well as the problems at the wider scale and the fish farming is just a manifestation because it's energetically highly inefficient because a lot of the feedstocks come from other fish which are high up the food chain. They're substituting more and more for for cheaper stuff from land, but it's basically you're eating a steak, you're only in the herbivore stage where you're eating a salmon, you're a carnivore of a carnivore of a carnivore sort of... Mm. And you lose 90% of the energy at each stage in that transition. So that's not a very efficient way of doing stuff. And the other technologies that might work, are, you know, sort of the artificial meat and fish technologies, which seem to develop to a stage where some people even prefer that stuff to the original. So there's a lot of hope around that uh, things will rectify themselves as pathways. Pathways are obvious and human beings do tend to suddenly change and reverse direction very rapidly about a lot of issues. So
3: So, as individuals, we can make different choices. What about policy support or change from government?
2: Yeah, do you think there's much hope of that? I mean, the government's (laughs) basically in the pockets of the fossil fuel industry and, and the opposition is as well. I mean, the only hope politically is that people will take charge of politics by electing independents beholden to their electorates and that's a possibility and i'm hoping hoping that it might eventuate a bit yeah Mm. i just think that it's an issue in the coastal regions it's an issue that involves everyone because it's not in tasmania the issue isn't just between uh, greenies and hyper developers it's Basically between people who love their coast and love doing a bit of fishing and love having beaches that are free of rubbish, love having, you know, sort of the water that's not slightly green, love all those things. And they're not just simply green voters or any sort of voters. They're basically people who just want their environment to be something that they can enjoy and be part of.
1: I think that's a lovely take home message and perhaps encourage some of our listeners to maybe even reduce their fishing take. <laughs>
2: Save you from uh, the very high concentrations of mercury in a lot of fish. Indeed,
1: exactly.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm not naming any fish. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, thank you very much, uh, Jamie Kirkpatrick. We really appreciate your time today. No worries. Natural environments are precious, but they are routinely undervalued. One of the most famous or infamous, depending on your view, examples of water management in the world the Murray-Darling Basin, has been the subject of debate for decades. In 2020, agricultural production was worth an estimated $24 billion, and tourism a reported $8 billion. The market for water access entitlements, that is, tradable water rights, is thought to be worth more than $25 billion. These figures contrast starkly with the distressing news of Wilcannia's town water supply running dry, or of dead Murray Cod floating, asphyxiated in low oxygen water. The Murray-Darling Basin has been subject to government inquiries and reviews, including a royal commission by the downstream state, South Australia. Ongoing stress in the basin has motivated many people of diverse backgrounds to stand up and demand a new paradigm for water justice in Australia. In 2018, Michelle Maloney of the Australian Earth Laws Alliance organised the Australian People's Tribunal, detailed in this episode's description. The citizens' inquiry into the health of the Barker-Darling River and Menindee Lakes heard from over 100 voices speaking truth to power in places where people are often ignored.
4: I mean, this is another thing, you know, it's because it's in a remoter area than the cities, this is one of the big issues, how do you get Um, more attention on this issue and long-term strategies. So we're just as keen as you are to understand what local people might already be doing and how we can support that.
1: Michelle Maloney is a Doctor of Law and is a very active advocate of sustainability and community building projects in her work fighting climate change. Through institutions such as the Australian Earth Alliance, the New Economy Network Australia, and Future Dreaming Australia, as well as many other associations, Michelle's efforts have had tangible impacts. Leading initiatives such as the Australian People's Tribunal, Michelle has brought a voice to the beating hearts affected by Australia's water policy failures, but in doing so has uncovered paths forward. Michelle spoke to Kat and myself, providing insight into the fight for better water policy for the Murray-Darling Basin. We're joined today by Dr. Michelle Maloney, the National Convener of the Australian Earth Laws Alliance. Thank you very much for joining us, Michelle.
4: Thank you for having me. Michelle, I noticed
3: on the AILA website, you say that you're an earth-centred human and that you specialise
4: in earth-centred law, jurisprudence and governance. Can you tell us a bit more about this perspective? Yeah, for sure. So firstly, I'd like to acknowledge that I live, work and play on Yagara, Turrbal country here in North Brisbane. Um, I think it's important for us to always acknowledge where we are and whose land we're on. And the quickest way to explain what I mean by an earth-centred human and then link that to my work is... Apparently, from the moment I could open my eyes or walk or crawl, I loved plants and animals and was always quite delighted by the living world. And I think throughout my my youth and high school, I was always interested in how I could be of use to the living world. And as a non-scientist type, someone who loved the humanities, I think I struggled in my 20s to try to find how I could be of most use because the environment always seemed to be the domain of natural scientists, particularly when I was growing up in the, the early 80s. But what we mean by earth-centred governance, the, the quickest way to talk about it is to explain that we were inspired by some writings by a wonderful deep ecologist called Thomas Berry. And in his book, The Great Work, Our Way into the Future, he talks about um, how modern industrialised societies for you know the origins of our thinking um, and the actions we've taken through um, many thousands of years, and particularly the last 500 years with colonisation around the world, is extractivist, and very human-centered and so what he suggested was that we need a new way of thinking that connects us to the cosmologies of older cultures that are still with us today and, and many which have passed the idea is that, to recognize that we're connected to the living world and that's all well and good but i think what really resonated for me in his book was this call to people who like myself might be governance nerds interested in those underpinning structures of how communities and societies work and so in earth jurisprudence He critiques these four big underpinning structures of modern industrial society, He what he calls these four big structures, and that's law and government, economics, education and religion. And in a way, uh, our work within the Australian Earth Laws Alliance has been a direct response to that call to really look at the governance systems we live within that we've all been born into and think about how... Certain aspects of those structures, the legal system, our economic system, are focused on only the well-being of human beings and sometimes only a small number of human beings. They're very human-centred. They're not at all connected to place or connected to the living world. So all of our work, and when I describe myself as an, as an earth-centred human or someone interested in earth-centred governance, is really playing a small role in critiquing the systems we have keeping the good stuff and trying to um, unpick and restitch those activities, practices, institutions, everything really, the thinking um, that's causing significant extractivist style harm. So that's a long-winded explanation, but that's the easiest way to frame it. No,
1: I'm I'm inspired by it. I, I like the term. Could you tell us what an earth-centred perspective can tell us about the problems in the Murray-Darling Basin?
4: Oh gosh, yes. I mean, that's a big question, isn't it? But so an Earth-centered perspective, really, it's just ecocentrism—the idea that we're not alone on this beautiful planet. Um, you know, we have co-evolved with millions of other species, and if we have an ecocentric or Earth-centered worldview, then really everything we do is thinking about the well-being of the entire interconnected web of life. Sometimes that's covered off as biodiversity. There's so many different frames for it. You know, the work we do is not unique. When you look at the world through an ecocentric lens, what it really does is I guess, throw into very sharp relief what human beings are doing, what we expect to take from nature, the living world, and really asks us, are we being fair? If you look at it through the shield, just a simple lens of fairness, then we would look across a system like the Murray-Darling, uh, you know, an absolutely profoundly remarkable and so beautiful river system in the internal parts of an ancient dry continent, An earth centered worldview would say, Isn't that amazing? And shouldn't we revere and treasure this water, sacred water in a very dry place, and look at the amazing animals and plants and fish um, and, you know, enjoy, celebrate, and certainly support? But then if you look at it from a different perspective, very much the The mindset that came over when we colonised and when I say we I should have located myself culturally when I recognise country I'm a descendant of the Irish convicts who were dragged over here unwillingly although I'm now very relieved that I was I love this place but you know when my people the colonial peoples came they saw water as something to use and that's fine everybody does but they you know disrespected And that's a whole other conversation in terms of not even seeing what Aboriginal people's culture was or how they cared for place. But really, since the settler people came, they've been using the water. They've been changing the land. I think of us as, you know, pretty significant terraformers. And it's all very much from a human-centred and extractivist mode. You know, what can we get out of this place? And I don't mean to be unfair. There's lots of communities who live along the river and they love it. But if we were looking in this very moment today... We would suggest that the over-extraction of water, particularly from the top end of the system, in my home state in particular, whether that's for cotton or other large-scale agriculture, we're just taking too much water from a dry land system. And a human-centred perspective will always try to patch up the problem and keep doing what it wants to do, you know, like let's just keep taking the water and we'll allocate this much or we'll change this much or we'll just give up on Menindee Lakes, whereas an ecocentric point of view says all of the living world has a right to exist and as human beings we have a special place because we have capacity to harm or support and let's choose a path that enables us to live in these beautiful places but also care for the rest of the world so so I hope that sort of answers the question.
3: Yes it does and it sounds like some of these points came out when Ayla ran the Rights of Nature People's Tribunals Significantly, there was a tribunal in Murray Darling Basin, the Citizens' Inquiry into the Health of the Barker and Darling River and the Menindee Lakes. Michelle, can you tell us a bit more about the tribunal and its outcomes?
4: Yeah, for sure. So first, a little about the tribunal itself and then what we got up to when we visited people in 2019. Back in 2014, I was lucky enough to participate in the International Rights of Nature Tribunal in Ecuador and it was Ecuadorian people setting up really just a space for civil society to air their concerns about the treatment of of nature and to challenge some of the existing state uh, government decisions and laws and particularly large extractivist projects around the world. So there were all these people kind of sharing stories. You could think of it as a mock trial or you could think of it as a citizen's hearing. It was really powerful. And because I was the only Aussie there, I volunteered to raise the issue of the Great Barrier Reef And it just felt like a really valuable way for citizens to engage in discussions about what's going on in country. So flash forward, we, a bunch of us inside AILA and some Indigenous elders, myself and some other lawyers, set up this, what we consider a permanent space for civil society. So if anyone's interested in in learning about that, the website is tribunal.org.au. So in 2016, we held four cases and we held it at the Banco Court in Brisbane and we started the day with the wonderful Yagara dancers in front of paintings of the old white men who were judges throughout the time of that court. It was a very powerful day and we heard stories from the point of view of nature. And then in 2018 we looked at some of the impacts of large-scale agriculture in two particular areas and one of them was the impacts of agriculture and water extraction on Menindee Lakes. And these issues are brought to us by other concerned human beings. And at the end of the 2018 Tribunal, we volunteered to go to some of the places along the Barker that were suffering from the drought and the harsh conditions of the time and have a listening tour and let people share. So again, if you go to our website, tribunal.org.au, you'll see the 2019 report. We visited eight towns. We listened to about 200 people. We have 110 video testimonies and all of those raw, you know, the raw footage of people talking about what was happening is available on that website. And we also took, I think, more than a year to pull together the vast amount of information people were sharing. So we've got this 230 page report, but it's literally been written by us for communities to have as their own tool to show people their story of what's been happening to the place So back to your original question, yes, those stories absolutely showed that many, many, many local people are not only concerned about what's been happening and have been for a long time, they know in detail what should be done differently. They know how to care for the place. They want the living system to be the priority, not extractivist rules allowing large corporations and others to take and steal water, whether it's through floodplain harvesting or all the other technical ways that certain government decision-makers allow too much water to be taken from the living system. It was a very profound, disturbing two weeks where we were sitting every day listening to people telling us how really quite horrific the situation had become in many towns with no water. And it wasn't just their own human concerns. It wasn't like they were all just talking about the lack of potable water, although that was pretty bloody awful, being an Australian, looking at other Australians who like when we were in Benin,di you know, everyone was lining up on Saturday morning waiting for the water truck to come so they could get fresh water they could trust. It was mind-blowing to see these things happen in one of the richest countries on earth. But it was also this deep love that local people have. I mean, obviously, we spoke with lots of wonderful Indigenous people, but also lots of wonderful other people. And I was a little bit surprised at how similar everybody's stories were they just wanted to have water in the river they wanted to have the river do its thing naturally and to sustain the remarkable life um, and ecosystems along there so it was very powerful and whenever i recommend that people have a look at the videos or read the report it's not to promote ourselves not at all we all we wanted to do as ordinary aussies was just volunteer our time and go down and, and try to tell some of their stories because Quite frankly, um, you know, the last few decades, the management or so-called management of the Murray-Darling is dominated by voices other than the people who are living and loving uh, the river. So, yeah. This
3: desire for a thriving and, and living environment and place to be seems quite intuitive. And these messages are really strong, but it sounds like a huge challenge to your status quo. Michelle, what are some of the, the barriers to sharing these stories? Are they falling on deaf
4: ears? Well, it's really interesting because I must admit, as a little kid who grew up in the bush out in Barky and then travelled the world and now live in Brisbane, I was ignorant about how many of the folks out along the river felt. I have known for decades the river system was in trouble, but it wasn't until this trip that I heard people saying things like, they don't care about us. The politicians in the big cities, they, they don't care if this place empties out. We're a small population. It just means they can let big companies come in and take whatever, minerals, water, anything. There was this real feeling of people not just disconnected and not just having political processes that were completely distant and inappropriate, but almost a complete abandonment of the welfare and well-being of people out there. So when you ask about barriers, my brain immediately leaps into the political structures that since colonisation of this continent have been in place, which is a small group of elite rich who were either given stolen land or over time have been able to buy it through corporate or other vested interests, they still are in the positions of making the decisions about places. And so whether you're looking at Canberra or Sydney or Melbourne or Adelaide, people making decisions in parliament or in back rooms about water allocation, you know, all of these decisions are distant. So the barriers, the stories being heard Include media in Australia, as we know, is very dominated by certain interests who aren't, who really aren't interested in the environment. Um, they're more interested in other things, power, wealth. But not just that, our political systems have been geared from the day the colonies were set up to be governed from top down. You know, we don't have effective voices at the local level. And I, as a governance nerd, I would argue and will argue until there's no breath left in my body that voting for one representative every three years and then hoping they do the right thing for all your people is not what I would call participatory democracy. So the barriers are really at the foundation level, the governance structures, the power structures, who's making decisions. You know, most people who live in a place and love a place are not going to make decisions that trash the place. I won't go into the stories because they're all on the, the tribunal videos and such, but just stories of places being bought up by foreign or other local interests who don't live there, who don't care. And then in 2012, you know, the commodification of the water, which means for anyone who doesn't know what that means, it's it, once upon a time we were using too much water, but at least if you were on land along the river, you were given an allocation and you used the water. Now anyone can buy and sell that water on a marketplace. It, it's quite bizarre. It's all separated and distinct and, you know, it's it really is the essence of a Western construct of separation from nature that humans can do whatever they want and that the living world is not home nor is it interconnected you know it's just it's mind-boggling to anyone with common sense when we travel that river at that time to just look around and go my god aren't we smarter than this can't we do better than this so the barriers are political structural Definitely in terms of information, it's not commonly discussed in the mainstream media, but nor are many other important local issues. So that's my very simple overview of the huge problems, but they are fixable.
1: Well, that leads into our, our next question, which is what does a grassroots fight, a fight that you have been fighting, I suppose, uh, what does it look like um, well, yeah. in your work?
4: Yeah. And I'll be honest, you know, I live in Brisbane. I am located here in a, in a small city. I can't speak for the people, particularly the Indigenous people or anyone else who live along that river, but as an outsider who joined with others to just come and listen to stories, the answers are all in those stories. And the answers are local control over water allocation and better governance structures to enable people to live and work and play and cooperate along that river so that they can ensure everyone's doing okay. And I was so impressed and so in awe of all of the local people who came forward to talk about the issues. They have a great understanding and knowledge of exactly what's going on, of who's stealing water, of where the unfairness is. They also know how to care for the place. And everybody that we were talking to supported the notion of being led by Indigenous knowledge and Indigenous governance systems to ensure that traditional and cultural values could be continued by the Barkindji and other First Nations peoples. There was a lot of similarities in the themes and the ideas. Obviously, there was bits and pieces of difference, but there's some terrific examples of how local people know the place and how local people should be able to have greater control. And in many places, whether it's big mining companies coming in and trashing the joint or gas companies, very rarely do local people want that. There might be a handful who think it's for jobs, but most people want to care for their place and have a livable future. And may I give a plug for the fact that the Australian Earth Laws Alliance forspersed Australia's sort of main civil society network looking at building a new well-being economy because everyone argues that you can't have environmental protection you must have jobs and growth and we say no you can have both and a beautiful world is having both a beautiful world is a thriving beautiful place where people are making a living in a sustainable way in local places connecting where necessary to interstate international connections so there are solutions and there's a bundle of them floating around the planet right now Actually, very exciting to sort of see all of this interconnectedness around a better economy, better land management, regenerative approaches. So I think they're the solutions.
3: If people want to get involved, where's a
4: good place for them to start? Mm, Great question. Love that question. Okay. If you're interested in earth-centred anything, please either jump on the AILA mailing list or send us an email and say hello. Our main email is AILA, A-E-L-A, at earthlaws.com. Dot org.au, and our website is similarly earthlaws.org.au.
1: Amazing. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Michelle Maloney.
4: Thank you for having me.
1: Ecosystems suffer with their inhabitants, and whether it be directly or indirectly, the Australian people feel it when water systems are suffering. First Nations people are affected by specific water injustices related to colonisation. As the custodians of this country who have taken care of water for millennia, their long-standing spiritual connections to water and land is the strength propelling water warriors to protect it, despite the ongoing injustice. Indigenous rights to water are continually denied, and the wisdom of conservation and sustainability that First Nations peoples can provide are continually ignored. We feel strongly that the denial of First Nations rights by those in power represents some of the most egregious examples of water injustice.
5: We need to start demanding more from the government I think the government has forgotten that they are there to serve us, the people. And it's a privilege to be in the positions that they are. And we've become all too tired because we are trying to feed our kids and make a living. And we need to remember that we need to get out there now and start demanding more of the government or there's not gonna be much of a future for our kids. Hi, my name is Ricky Dank. My family and my country know me as Luddy Noraluma. I'm a Gurrenji and Wakaya person from the Rumbaria clan. I'm also a Nimarinki, and my home is on the Barclay
1: Tablelands. Ricky Dank still describes herself as that little girl from Baralula, a remote community in the Northern Territory. Ricky is the owner and director of Lajari, a Dubai-based First Nations art gallery that brings attention to the oldest continuing culture on Earth. Ricky is creating awareness and value for First Nations art from across the continent of so called Australia by telling the associated stories and supporting the communities the art originates from. Ricky's activism also extends to climate and water, all part of the connection between Australian First Nations people's culture and the land on which it forms. Ricky represented Australia as one of just four First Nations delegates to COP26, of which there are over 25,000 attendees. Ricky made a significant impact and brought First Nations understandings of land and water to the conversation. In hope of continuing this conversation, Kat and I spoke to Ricky to find a path toward water justice, incorporating this wisdom. Just a warning that this interview may be distressing to some listeners due to descriptions of loss and colonial oppression. Ricky Dank, thank you very much for joining us on the Water Justice podcast.
5: Thank you very much for having me. Um, It's a pleasure and I really appreciate the opportunity.
1: No problem. I'd like to start with pulling up the discrepancy that Indigenous Australians have rights to less than 1% of Australia's water or water mass. So what has that meant for your experience growing up as a traditional owner?
5: For us, where I'm from, I suppose ignorance is bliss after after a while. You know, when when you're living in a remote part of Australia and you're not really affected by a lot of Things until you know it comes knocking on your door, you don't realise what laws and regulations really affect you until it's right there in your face. Rights for water, to, to water for us, good Ngarrindjeri people on garangini we didn't really have, have any issues until our country was started to be le- leased out essentially without our consent and we saw that there were uh, cattle overgrazing our country and also in a, a lot of the water was being used up by those cattle in, in the dry season, which didn't leave a lot of water for the other animals, for, for even my family. We had to then rely on a lot more, on the boar water a lot more. And, you know, when we found out that we really didn't have a say or a voice and in, in voicing that concerns us on our own country, that's when it was apparent to us that we don't really have a lot of control. But it also was apparent to us, I think, when the MacArthur River Mine became open-cut. Water has always been an issue when it comes to MacArthur River Mine. Um, locals have always felt that, it was slowly poisoning MacArthur River. Now, MacArthur River is a major uh, food source for people living in Boralula and around Boralula. They pitched out of that kids swimming there despite crocodiles. <laughs> for Boralula, MacArthur River is a lifeline. You know, So when MacArthur River went open cut, it completely changed the river. We noticed the change in the water quality and you know, there's there's been reports on their you know heavy lead content and things in in that water. So, you know, we are well aware of the lead content in in MacArthur River and then possibly leaking into the town's drinking water. So for a long time we have known that we don't have rights and that our rights as human beings isn't taken into account when it comes to the Australian government.
1: What kinds of avenues? I'm sure that you've explored everything I, I can imagine just to not, not only try and get heard, but to, to try and change something. I...
5: Yeah. So, of course, we've approached our land council, so our local land council, northern land council. We've approached every newspaper you could possibly, major newspaper in Australia. Of course, you know, the, the mainstream news outlets like Channel 7, all of that. We've gone to every major law firm possible. We've emailed the Prime Minister, we've emailed Labor, Liberals, even the um, Minister for Indigenous Affairs. We are currently speaking to the Greens. So my family have been doing this for the last 35 years. I remember my mum at a Northern Land Council meeting. I wanted to get up and play. I was only about four or five and she grabbed me and she pushed me to the ground and she made me sit and she said, you need to sit here and you need to listen to what's going on because you will need to do this when you are my age. And lo and behold, here I am, you know, we, we have been doing this for a long time and kind of haven't gotten anywhere really until we've only spoken to, to the Greens and until I got the opportunity to go to COP in Glasgow.
1: Right. So you got to go to a pretty significant world event. Can you tell us about what kind of goals or maybe an agenda you've had for going there?
5: There was no agenda. Nothing was planned out. I just rocked up there. I only had a week, but I had uh, a goal to work and to do what I could, where I could. I didn't sleep very much while I was in COP because it was this adrenaline rush 24-7 for the whole days. And even for a week after, it was like he had this buzz after. it COP was a really surreal experience. So I, I just literally hit the ground running in Glasgow and that was it. That was the goal at that time. And I hear you had a conversation with, with Santos. Can you tell us
3: why Santos
5: and what you were raising with them? If you saw like the photos coming back from COP, Santos was right at the front of the Australian Pavilion and they had this great big diagram of them, the carbon capture and storage idea. And I know that Santos is also involved in in, in fracking of the Beedaloo and I'm also sure that it's possibly MacArthur River basin as well. So, you know, I sat down with him and I I said, that part is not my country and I cannot speak for that. And so I I spoke to him about how maybe they needed to go in and actually sit down and and speak to traditional owners properly and ask for informed consent and, and just let them know what actually really is happening and just sit down with people and have a talk with them. As opposed to, you know, getting another organisation to to go in and do it, um, which I assume is what they did also, because I likened him to. It's another invasion to us. It, it's another invasion to our our country. We're seeing, you know, our families and our grandmothers had fought so hard to get that land back, and then all of a sudden, it's been taken away again from from them and they've been tricked. They've been tricked into signing stuff like my my own grandmother who is now in her mid 90s. She doesn't read or write and doesn't speak standard Australian English was tricked into signing a document she doesn't know she was signing. And it makes me angry that they have taken their trust and they have fooled them and made them feel so little and small. And that they've taken their country, that they worked so hard to get back and made them look like fools. It makes me angry. And I said, you know, it feels like we are being colonized over again. You know, my country where my family, and it wasn't that long ago, it was my grandfather's aunts, uncles, you know, his grandfather, they were being pushed off the cliffs. And I can take you where their bones are laying today. And, you know, we refuse to let some mining company, some oil and gas company disturb their resting place. So we've, we had a discussion about that and about how he came in and how he is destroying country and how he is disturbing those old people. And he's from Scotland. So And I said, you know, you understand what it's like. You've had the British invade and destroy your homelands and your people. And he basically sat down for a while and didn't say anything much and he hung his head. To be honest, I don't know what, if any, impact that it had. Maybe it had given him some time to pause and think about what he is doing and taking part in. I'm not sure. But I I think I shouldn't have to illustrate that to him for him to understand the, the impact that it is having on communities especially you know indigenous communities when all of that history wasn't so long ago yeah
1: that idea of informed consent seems like a little bit tricky it seems you know as you were saying, this kind of being colonised again, it seems to be happening in this totally pseudo-legal way where signing documents and things, and the traditional owners are having to start those conversations on the back foot. They're not being met in good faith. What would what would true informed consent look like, if I could ask you to imagine that?
5: So for me, it would be an organisation like Land Council that would be coming to us with empire who's on our place coming with them saying look can we have a conversation with you about about fracking can we make a time and and place where we can speak about it so we can make sure we can get all the relevant people for me i'm i'm a numarinki which means i'm one of the bosses i'm a very junior very junior still learning my grandmothers are the most senior so they make the decisions. Our, our country is Marawana country, so it's women's country. So the senior ladies make the decisions. We also have these have important people who are called jungai. And jungai are people who hold the law and enforce the law. And the most senior jungai is currently my mother. And I, I actually rang my mother up and had a conversation about what I needed to do at a meeting coming up recently. And so me, you know, being a, a responsible Nimrinki, I have to follow the law. So it would mean also that there would be all the senior Nimarinki all the senior Jungai, because you can't have one without the other. They're both essential when making decisions. And you'd also have all the junior imranki and the junior jungai as as so that they can sit there and it's an, uh, an important learning experience for them. So that would happen and it would not take a day, it wouldn't take a month, it might even take two months. It could be six months. But that's how long I would expect to make sure that everyone is comfortable, everyone is informed, everyone is happy to say, to decide yes or no, and then we can move forward with the decision. And I think it's it's really important to understand that, you know, with us, it's not a clean cut and dry type of a society, you know. Yes, we have senior people that make the decisions, but, you know, you need all of those senior people to agree on one thing. Sometimes it can be quite difficult, but that's just how it is and that's how it has worked for thousands of years. So for me, that's what would be informed consent for the people.
1: I think that homogenization of traditional owners' perspectives or positions has been really dangerous and what it does is oversimplify a really complex issue you know we're talking about water rights and it's connected to so many other kinds of issues you know from women's country and issues of the patriarchy let's say kind of play into those dynamics what informed consent legal standpoint you know affects these water rights like there's there's so many layers of complexity in these issues yeah
5: yeah, and when we're making decisions, you know, we have to consider our sacred, the impacts on our sacred sites, the impacts on our songlines. But also equally importantly, and equally and importantly, the impacts on our neighbouring nations. Because as a good Angie person, if we don't take care of our, our country and maintain our country, we could impact our neighbours and Like, if we don't burn off every year at the right time and we cause a huge outbreak and fire, it could go into the neighbouring nation and just wipe out their country and their crops and, you know, that they've taken, you know, a year to, to grow. And then what happens then? How are they going to eat? You know, not only are we going to have no food, but they're going to have no food. So is this really this this flow-on effect that happens that we we can't be inconsiderate. We need to consider all of these things, not just you know in the near future, but down the line as well. So that's why it has to take a long time because we have to consider these things.
3: That that is a big problem in in many places. Of government decision making just focuses on one area and not neighbouring places. Ricky what would you like to see instead like what what do you think is the pathway to water justice
5: uh, you know i think for us it's it's really simple we just we don't want our water poisoned we want i don't know if it's even even possible but you know we would love for the macarthur river to be put back how it how it should be and we would love for the poisons to be you know magically taken out of the water for us good Angie rambaria people we pride ourselves on maintaining our country and keeping it how our old people have kept it for thousands of years and that means just keeping it clean keeping it safe and keeping it how it used to be how it should be for for future generations so for us we are actually really, really lucky, and we know that. We've got spring water everywhere, and it's beautiful. It's, it's lime-fed spring water, and it's clean. And so we are really aware of how lucky we are. So for us, we just want the fracking companies to get off our land. But for everyone else, we want the same. We want them to have clean, safe drinking water and access to that drinking water as well.
1: Can I ask, what can our listeners do? What what can we do to help this cause?
5: I mean, there's there's all kinds of different ways to help. I mean, and the thing is too, I think what the government has been relying on now is the fact that we're so tired because we've we've got to get up and we've got to go to work. The wages aren't rising to match, you know, our daily needs and so I know it's hard to you know spare time to write to, to the government to email the government to phone them so there there are those options there's options to go to rallies as well and to be an ally and I know indigenous people are always really grateful for for allies and we don't just need those allies on January 26th but you know we need them all year round so there's those opportunities but you know also People in the mining industry, yet you know, I, I feel like they need to get out, go upskill now, find a new job now, and upskill, and make that tra- transfer out of you know those mining industries, because I I feel like we have the technology to transition into a greener future, but we we aren't doing it. And I also think, you know, when it comes to water, I was also really, really lucky to have spent some time on on the Gold Coast and going surfing. Like half of my life was out bush and with my grandmothers going on country looking for sugar bag and living out bush. And the other half was like surfing on the Gold Coast. So I've had this most amazing, strange life. (laughs) So my grandfather, he would go and pick up all the rubbish on the beach. So, you know, because we, we're starting to hear all of those small, minute pieces of plastic that are making its way now into the oceans and into the Arctic. So, we need to be aware of that and making sure we recycle and making sure that that gets to the right place and is definitely recycled. So, I think, you know, we need to get annoyed enough. We need mm. to get sick and tired enough of the government and we need to start demanding more because, you know, as far as I can see, they've they've got a really cushy life and they get to sit up, you know, wherever they're li- living. Scott Morrison doesn't know the price of, of bread and milk. And he probably never will, you know, because he'll get to retire on on his fund now for the rest of his life and and sit pretty, which is really, really unfair because he did a really dodgy job. So I think Australia needs to sit down and have a really hard think about what kind of future we want for for our kids. Do you think people in government
3: ever wonder about
5: What's in their water, in their drinking water? No, no. You know, and I'd be surprised though if they did drink their tap water. You know, I would imagine Scott Morrison, he would like his little, was it Avion? You know, slightly chilled. Uh, (laughs) So I don't imagine him drinking tap water at all. Um, He'd have to be, you know, really desperate uh, to to drink tap water, I think.
3: What about art ricky
5: what's the role of of art at this point in time and in your life so i think that that's the great thing about art is that people can take it and make it you know how they want want to make it and bend it so i'm here in dubai and i had this that great idea of having an art gallery here and i just opened it up when i heard whispers of covid you know countries away and you don't really know that you know how could anyone possibly know that there's going to be a a global uh, how there's going to be a pandemic so I've decided now to just go online a bit for a while until COVID settles down but uh, Indigenous Australian art is a relatively new concept here in in UAE there is a lot of interest it has been though really difficult though trying to juggle art gallery Ricky, and fighting for her country Ricky. and I've always put my country first because I just, I'm really tough on myself because I, I feel like I can sleep better at night knowing that I have done my absolute best and I've done what I, what I could, you know, what I could do because I couldn't bear the thought of thinking I could have done that or I could have done this or I could have done that better. So I, I know it's a lot of hard work and I know it's a lot of hard work on myself and my family because my family have been instrumental absolutely throughout it, but I couldn't live with myself if I didn't work as hard as I, I, I'm, I am at the moment. So is my business suffering for it? I mean, yes. <laughs> but, you know, you can start up your businesses again. You can't get back your country once it's destroyed. It's, you know, 65,000 years of songlines of sacred sites of your ancestors walking there. You can't get that back once it's gone.
1: I think that's a really powerful way to end uh, our discussion. Thank you for opening up with us. Thank you for sharing your story and for fighting for your country. We really appreciate speaking with you today, Ricky.
5: Uh, thank you. um I honestly do appreciate um, being asked to to speak to you guys so um, thank you and thank you for allowing me to to share not just my story, my my family's story. Mm. Thanks Ricky, it was a privilege to to talk to you and to share that with you.
3: This is a deep and expansive topic and there's much we didn't cover, but we have brought important voices to the foreground and continued moving towards water justice. We hope that you've taken some ideas to ruminate on and a new perspective on how water works in your life. This episode concludes the traveling for this series. In the next episode, we will return with a panel in recognition of a journal special issue recently published by some of the water justice hubs, water warriors, otherwise known as researchers. For now, if you found any of these interviews of particular interest, you can find out more information about our guests' work in the episode description please consider subscribing and sharing this episode as it helps spread the ideas of water justice. We hope you'll stay tuned to the water justice podcast. Bye for now.